0: What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Mabira. An inmate at the California State Prison San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of quit Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a group of people around, he was just
1: me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nogueira. And today we're going to have some more stories of debauchery from the prison yard involving very depraved people doing very depraved things. But first we have a listener-submitted question. This is from Ezra in Santa Monica, California. And he says, Bill... What is the coolest alias that you've heard from a criminal? Of course, a lot of these guys have these aliases. And I remember, like, when I was working on a show called Murder on Ice, which is a different podcast, which is available uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast, also if you want to check it out, uh, that I was tracking down someone and their alias, you know, I had to use their alias, and it was Shadow. And I thought that was kind of cool but not the coolest I've heard by any means. Um, so do you have any any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of good aliases. Um, and a lot of guys get them because some guys give them to themselves. Other ones, well, most of the time, other convicts or gang members give it to that person. It becomes kind of an alter ego of who that person is. You know, the guy's name is Shady. He's usually probably a pretty, you know, shady character. Um, but my favorite one has always been, and, and I'm a little biased because I knew the guy really well. He was my workout partner, and actually the story we're going to talk about it involves him in, 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 a, in a kind of roundabout way because he's present. And, and I've mentioned him before. His name is Monster, and his real name was Eddie Romero. And the name fit him, not because he was a big guy, not because this guy... Uh, if you saw him somewhere, you'd remember him. But if you looked at his eyes, you know why they called him monster. This guy was one of the highest ranked inmate guys that I knew, and he was exactly that, a monster. But he led by example. This guy wasn't one of those guys who just called shots and told people to do things. He was always at the head of whatever charge he was you know, initiating. Violence debauchery and all the things that we've talked about this guy was he was the modern version of the joker okay he was a criminal and a convict
1: yeah when i was young i i was very tall and thin and i played basketball and so they the older kids called me bones which i thought was cool but it it never stuck unfortunately um, but I agree. I, I don't think you can give yourself an alias I, I, that's not nearly as cool. It, it has to be bestowed on you. I, I agree with you on that.
0: Totally. Yeah, you can usually tell when someone gets a name how he acts and how he is and how people refer to him. But yeah, this guy, that was his alias. And um, that's what everybody called. No one ever called him Romero or Eddie. They always called him Monster. That was his nickname, and that's what he went by um so yeah that was probably my favorite of all of them but there's been a lot of them believe me when i tell you
1: there's a lot of them for any new listeners we have you are of course calling in live from death row you're on death row right now and and that qualifies you to to talk about things and and tell these stories which which we're going to get into First, I want to remind everyone to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Road Diaries and try and rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. That's that's where the ratings and reviews make a difference, and we do appreciate that. So let's get into this uh, this story, and this is from your book, Escape Artist, right?
0: yeah so kind of a little plug for the book yeah i've written a book called escape artist memoir of visionary artist on death row it's available wherever we can buy books but yeah this story is a, a number of these stories are from the book and they're all all true i mean i was i witnessed them this isn't something that i that i heard i was right there when this happened so yeah absolutely in the book true story and the <laughs> Kind of the ingenious way the guys work within these prison bars will shock a lot of uh, a lot of the listeners because this is this is what convicts do, and this is how they respond to any form of disrespect or how they perceive that they've been disrespected,
1: yeah, as we covered in I think it was the uh previous episode, not the most recent but before that uh you know these convicts are like i guess to say hyper aware of their status is an understatement but they're mostly kind of obsessed with with their personal pride and and status and and they decide if if anyone disrespects them uh they just need to kill them without really hashing things out and your telephone
0: number will be monitored and recorded yeah, that's absolutely right. That's exactly. That's the closest way to describe how they are hyper uh, sensitive to anything that's perceived as disrespectful or that their toes have been stepped on. And and this right here is just the perfect example of a very small action that turns into, well, trying
1: to kill somebody. So what's the setting? Where Where did this take place?
0: Okay, so this took place in Mod A in the Orange County Jail. Now, Mod A was considered Blood Alley. It was the most violent unit in the entire jail. And this is prior to getting to death row. But most of these guys here ended up on death row. So it's a mini death row. Um, So the setting is there are eight man cells, Mod A and Mod B. There are... Two tiers. The bottom one, which is A, and it has uh, eight cells, and each cell has eight men living it. Upstairs, which is B, same thing. Mod A, tank B, or tank 1 or tank 2, it's the same thing, but it's just about maybe 15 feet above, and you can go upstairs and downstairs by just taking the stairs, and you can basically yell down to anybody. It's an open tier, basically. So these cells, to give you a description, are, as I mentioned, eight-man cells. They have a living quarters on one side, and through a small door, which are bars, there's what's called a day room. There's a large table, there's a shower there, there's a television, and a telephone on the wall. Now, I know people are thinking, oh, Jesus, that sounds like freaking Disneyland. Well, let me just tell you that you can live in a beautiful manner. But if you're living with a bunch of murderers and killers, it's not such a nice place. Yes, the conditions seem to be nice, but it's all about who lived there. And this was what's called an affiliated module for gang members. And I'm not talking about guys from street gangs. Those guys are a dime a dozen. And although they can be dangerous, uh, there's a huge difference between a guy who's dangerous and a gun that drives by you shoots you. 12-year-old or a 5-year-old can be dangerous with a gun. These guys are gang members from prison gangs. And they don't shoot you. They don't cruise by at night and shoot through your window. The only way these guys get their point across is to stab and kill you. So there's a huge difference between a street gang member and a prison gang member. Because to become a member of a prison gang, you have to do the ultimate deed, which is to kill somebody. So that's the setting here.
1: Is there a way to tell the difference between a street gang guy and a prison gang guy, like based on their appearance? Or, I mean, how do you know that that's what they're about?
0: Well, yeah, you you really can't tell. But after so many years in prison, you kind of, there's no way of telling everybody's disaffiliated, but mannerisms the respect that he gets, the way he carries himself, you know that he's different. And most of the made guys, people know who they are. The guys within the walls know who they are. So, yeah, you shouldn't go around stepping around people's toes because even a street gang member, if he's been in prison long enough and understands how things are done, he's going to approach it the same way as a made guy or a convict. So it's really irrelevant if they're made or not or they're affiliated because even if you're not a made guy, if you're affiliated with a crew, that respect comes with it. And I was in that module. I was, actually, as I was saying, the uh, monster was in that module at this time. And in the cell that I was in, which was cell three, we had four made guys in that cell. Four. That's a lot for one small area. There was Eddie Munster, there was Midnight, there was Richard, and there was another guy named Sana. They were all made, and they were in my cell. So of the eight guys, four of them are made guys. The other three are associates, and there's me. I'm the youngest guy in the unit. I am 19 years old at this point. The closest guy in age to me is about 28 to 30 years of age. So it gives you an example of the kind of people I'm around. But so that's the the setting. That is how and where I'm at. And these are the things that happen behind
1: these walls, which we'll talk about now. So obviously there's going to be a conflict given the demographics and the setup here, right? Yeah. As I mentioned, this place is called
0: Blood Alley. And it has that name for a reason. The, the amount of assaults, stabbings, murders, attempted murders in this unit alone by far exceeds everything in any of the units, so much so that the captain of the Orange County Jail, which is the equivalent of the warden of St. Quentin, came into the units, took two of us from each cell and put us in the cell hall where we waited for about half an hour and he comes in with his lieutenants and he made it very clear to us that he was tired of the violence, tired of the stabbings, and that this would cease now. He said that if one more assault happened, or a stabbing or anything like that, that he would break up the unit. That was his position. Of course, you know, everybody listened to this guy there quietly. They gave him his birth, his... uh, I mean, his disrespect. And when he left, everybody just started laughing. He said, we don't care what this guy does. He could break up the unit and basically shove it up his ass. We don't care. That's the attitude. I mean, this guy had no leverage for these guys. So sure enough, two days after the you know, grand speech by the grand poobah, a guy comes home from uh, his uh, hearing in courts. And he walks by our cell. His name was um, Dan Viola. And look, everybody knew this guy—extremely violent killer. He was there for murder. He actually was there for for a double homicide. And he goes in his cell. That, you know, it's getting later. It's about seven thirty at night. They turn off the lights and the tear. The guys are watching television and enjoying the night. And suddenly, you hear. A huge crash and our, obviously we know that someone smashed the TV and of course it was my neighbor and there cell this guy Daniel went to court was pissed off at the decision or ruling on a motion that his attorneys made and while he was watching TV he just got up picked up the television and smashed it on the ground of course you have to understand that that the TV is the only entertainment these guys really have. If they're not watching television, they're usually making knives or planning how to kill somebody. So it was a huge disrespect to his cellies, which were seven other guys. And on top of that, it brought all the cops to the cell to see what happened. Of course, all his cellies said, oh, man, look, hey, I'm sorry we dropped the television. We were cleaning it. It fell. They covered for it. Now, whether the cops believed it or not, I don't know. But it brought a lot of heat to the unit. Now they're watching the unit, and that didn't sit well to a lot of people, especially his cellies, because he disrespected them.
1: I'll be right back. So is this his personal TV, or this is a communal TV?
0: Well, yeah, the, the state provides it. It's provided to the cell, and everybody in the cell watches it, and they take care of their stuff. These are, as like I said, grown men really take care of their things. The cells are very clean and um so yeah. But it's still the cell and they consider it their property because they watch it. And um as soon as this T V crashes, I look over at Monster and Richard and they just they just shake their head and, and smile. We know what's gonna happen. I mean this we know this is what happens beyond these prison walls and as I said Monster and I were workout partners. We were very close. He shared all of his thoughts and dialogues with me. And there was a reason for it. I was not a gang member. I am not a gang member. But what I brought to the table was significant in terms of my capabilities. So he was always trying to convince me that he, I should come to his side. And we'd have these hour-long dialogues about becoming a member and all the things that are expected. And I told him that look, that wasn't really for me. He tried to convince me at one point for, for a very long time, but once he realized my position, he took a bit of pride in it that and and I guess solace because he understood that he could tell me anything and there would never be a grab for power on my part. Hey, peace of mind is priceless in prison. And he was able to tell me everything he thought about, get my opinion on things, because I was unbiased. That's why we got along very well. And there was the other fact that we we're, were both machines, both in workouts and what we did. So he immediately told me, oh, man, <laughs> they're going to kill that boy. And I know this sounds kind of messed up, and the audience is probably going to think, Jesus Christ, you guys are going to bet on this, but that's exactly what happened. Um, Monster asked Richard and myself, what do you think is going to do the deed? Richard immediately thinks it's going to be, you know, a particular guy. And I'm like, no, it's not going to be him. My money is on Casper. So we, we made a bet. Richard took a guy named Prince. Monster took another guy. And I bet on Casper. And, um, You know, the night went by, nothing happened. And the following morning, as soon as I woke up, you know, Monster says, God, I love the smell of violence in the air. Because we knew, we could feel it. Everything is quiet. No one's talking like they usually talk. So we know something's going to happen. It's just a matter of when.
1: I was trying to figure out you know, so this guy breaks a TV and, you know, that would upset me. Say I was in like a, a dorm in college or something and if there's a shared TV and someone broke it, I would be I would be pissed for sure. But what part of this is systemic in terms of we just need to kill anyone that, you know, kind of makes a minor transgression? I, I get the part of it's necessary because you can't be pushed around because then you're weak and someone will take advantage of you. But what percentage of it is that versus, you know, that these guys are just kind of psychos that are really into violence? Well, yeah, it's exactly it.
0: They're into violence. or are into proving their point. But it's 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 about respect. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter if you steal a penny from a person or a million dollars. It's the act. And with the television, it wasn't so much the television as it was that it brought heat. All of these guys have weapons. All of these guys have drugs. All of these guys have cash money. If they're searched, they start losing things. This becomes a huge issue. And that guy being a convict understood that. So he made a conscious decision to break the television, bring heat, get everybody in a position where they could break up the unit. All these things he had to consider there is no excuse in prison. Well, I wasn't thinking. I lost my head. Uh-uh. That doesn't work in prison. So he made a decision. Now he's going to have to live with it. So, you know, a lot of things are going on there. As I said, Richard, take this guy named Prince, a huge monster of a guy. He's like six foot five, two 270 fucking pounds of monster. But see, I knew something about him that I never told anybody. I knew that Prince was a freaking informant. On a number of occasions, I had watched them in the hallway, going to court, deviate, and and then walked down an alley, which, not an alley, but a corridor, and I saw that the DA's investigator was waiting for him. So I knew that he was going to make a deal with the DA's officer, testify against his own crime partners. No one knew this but me. I wasn't going to tell anybody because, obviously, he would have killed him. I didn't want that on my conscience. But making this bet, I knew that he would not be doing it, and I knew that was a bad bet. I know it sounds disturbed, but this is the kind of mentality there is in this place. And unless I'm the one telling you all these things, the audience would never hear about it because you have to live in this place to talk about this place. You have to live in hell to describe hell. So, you know, we're we're sitting around and suddenly we hear the front door where the cop walks into the vestibule he opens the unit door, and he comes to his control panel. We all know what's going to happen. He immediately yells, "Reverly, reverly, chow time. All inmates going to chow, prepare yourselves. And all the doors run, up, 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 and they slide open. Of course, everybody's ready. Everybody steps out. And we step out, and there's about a 10 to 15-minute wait. And you step out into the front. There's a front wall and you kind of put your back against the wall and you watch the scene. Guys socialize, they talk, they shake hands. I'm sitting there watching because I know it's going to happen soon. So the door, next door to me, obviously opens and no one comes out for a moment. And then here comes Dad, and he is struck. He feels good about himself. As I say, he's a big guy, very strong. And he's walking and suddenly... Right behind them comes this guy named Casper. Now the thing about Casper is he would never remember him. Five foot eleven ish, one hundred and seventy pounds. Nothing about him makes you want to remember him. He's the perfect ghost. But I immediately look at him and I notice he's not wearing any shoes and no socks, and he's walking behind Dan. And he tells him, "Hey, Dan." And Dan turns to look at him and he says, "Hey, man." Uh, Shady's in the cell rolling up your stuff man and he's gonna throw it out right away Dan looks at him, focuses on him and his temper begins to flare remember this guy is a violent killer and he focuses on what he thinks is going on in the cell so he goes to stop and passes right by Casper at which point Casper says hey Dan Dan turns to look at him and that's when Casper pulls out an 8-inch stainless steel bone crusher and just stabs him right in the neck and then pulls it out and shoves it into his chest cavity. Pulls it out, shoves it into his, into his ribcage. Now, as this is happening, when you're stabbed, you don't know what's going on because the wounds don't kill you like you are doing TV. You get stabbed, it goes in, it takes your body and your mind a few seconds to react to it, to understand that you're feeling pain, to understand that there's damage to your body. So when he hits him the third time, now Dan responds. He grabs a hold of Casper and he's trying to wrestle him, but this guy's relentless. He is just stabbing gaping wounds into this guy's chest, stomach, throat, face, anywhere he can get this knife into, he's shoving it into this guy. And there's blood pouring everywhere. We're watching it. I mean, it's it's taking place that he's 10 feet away from me, and we're just watching. No one's gonna jump in, no one's gonna help this guy. This is what happens in prison. And suddenly, Dan breaks from the guy. He's he's trying to get this guy off him. This guy is like a a chipmunk on steroids. He's a small guy, but he's got his arm wrapped around his neck, and he just continues to plunge this um, bone crusher into this guy. But he's finally able to break away from Casper. And he runs towards the front of the unit, he's screaming, deputy, help, Kill me, deputy. He's basically screaming. He gets the front door, which is closed. The deputy also sees him from the other side, and you can hear the keys running. As he's running towards it, immediately I look to my left, and Casper now has walked into his cell, and he is stripped naked. He's taken off the jumpsuits, everything and he jumps into the shower. His partner, whose name is Cowboy, and these guys are like freaking heckle and jekyll. Everywhere you see Cowboy, Casper's right there. They're like two two peas in a pod. And Cowboy grabs the jumpsuit, opens the door to the mop room, because at the end of the pier, next to the cell, there's a huge mop room. He already has the water running. He throws the jumpsuit in there, and he dumps a bottle of bleach and soap in it and lets it keep running. He grabs the knife, and he puts it behind the sink where there's already a sleeve where it's going to be trapped and he can't get it out of it. It's between the sink and the wall. It's almost virtually impossible to find it unless you know it's there. But before that, he dipped it in the water with bleach, and he shoved it in there. Yeah, so then Cowboy, very quickly, as all this is taking place, Dan Viola is yelling for the office. They're opening the door. He collapses onto the vestibule. medic staff is calling an emergency. The, the alarms go off. They're, you know, they're trying to bring this guy back to life. Immediately, Cowboy runs into the cell where now Asper has stepped out of the shower. He's naked. And he's checking him for any kind of cuts, bruises, or anything. Finding none, Cowboy hands him another jumpsuit, which he puts on, and then that's what sort of clicks in my mind that he put, he only has one pair of shoes. That's why he wasn't wearing shoes. Had he had shoes on, there would be blood on them. And that would be a dead giveaway. He immediately puts on his only pair of shoes, which have no blood on them because they were in the cell and he was barefooted. And, you know, here comes the squad with all these guys with, you know, beanbag guns and everything making us go into our... They, they, you know, they make us go into ourselves because now they have to come in and investigate what's going on. And of course, when all this takes place, they, you know, they interview everybody. pull everybody out. Everybody one by one asking them, what were you doing? Where were you at? Of course, I was in the shower taking a, a shower. Everybody in the unit was in the shower taking a shower. Each cell only has one shower head, so it's kind of impossible. The point is no one said anything. And, um, Yeah, it was about two two hours until we went to eat breakfast, but that's what happens in prison when you disrespect your cellies and you have to deal with those type of consequences. Yeah, it's barbaric. I get that. But this is what happens in real places where you have men who live and die by reputation and by deeds.
1: Well, you don't mess with another man's TV. I mean, that's <clears throat> something that we're all aware of. So what made you want to pick Casper as your as your bet? I mean, what, what about him made you suspect that he might be the one to do it? Because he's
0: a complete stone killer. But more than that, he was a killer without conscience. I had known Casper for two years at that point. And Casper was extremely serious about becoming a respected man in prison. He would go on to become a prison gang member. And what that right there was, was making his bones. He wanted a reputation that people would respect. And that right there was his ticket to the beginning of that career.
1: Let me call back. I was wondering real quick before we get into you know, questions with a little more consequence. But I like to uh, gamble on sports. I usually do pretty well. When you're making this bet, I'm I'm just curious, you know, what are you betting and are there odds, you know, does, does Casper have like two to one or, or is this just a straight bet?
0: It was a straight bet. Each guy picked a guy and the winner would get $100 on his books. Well, I mean, each one hundred, so I I was gonna profit two hundred bucks. I mean, it sounds pretty, you know, pretty cruel that you're betting on this stuff. But yeah, we made a bet. I mean, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be honest, I'm gonna be candid with you, like I usually am. I made a bet, and um, I wasn't thinking too much of the consequences. Just hey, I made a bet. It was gonna happen regardless. So I bet, and as I said, I knew Casper, and I knew how serious he was. People didn't take him as serious because he didn't look like your mountain man or your, you know, Russian experiment. This guy wasn't 6'4 or 6'5. This guy was a small guy. He was unnoticeable. Nothing about him stuck except for one thing. I knew his heart. I knew the type of guy that he was, and he was a killer at heart. And I knew that he would be the one that would do it. It was just that simple.
1: The thing that confuses me about the situation is this place is called Blood Alley. Everyone knows what goes on there. It's obviously something that's been discussed by the administration. And the warden comes down and, like, threatens to break it up. But everyone laughs at him. And it's not computing to me. Because it's like, well, then why not just break it up? Like, why have this demonstration? And... I'm, I'm assuming there's just nowhere else for the guys to go, but it's obviously like a, a completely messed up situation.
0: Well, look, it's, it's actually simpler than that. If you spread cancer, it grows. He knew that. He was just basically saying what he needed to say at least to cover his own ass. But... A day later, he broke up the unit. That's exactly what he did. What what he didn't expect was all of these guys individually are still a huge threat. So he sent a lot of us to Mod C, which is another eight-man cell tank for convicts. It wasn't as violent as um, Blood Alley was. But nevertheless, these guys are all the same. Not that you bring in the most violent guys and you bring maybe 10 or 15 of them over here they're immediately gonna influence what's going on. So much so that as soon as they moved me out of the unit, I went to the new unit, and within 15 minutes, I was already on the broom, I'd already taken over, and I was the tear the, the tender, I was the, the, the guy. And let me explain why being a tear tender or the sweeper is so significant. Yeah, most of you are saying, well look, you're a janitor. You're, you're, you're sweeping floors. Yeah, that's just, that's just what it appears to be. If you're the sweeper or the the tear tender, that's what they call them. You have access to everything. You walk the tiers with no uh, restraints, upstairs and downstairs. You move the drugs. You move the weapons. Anything that happens, you get a cut of it. For example, I'm going to send you Matt a, a donut. You automatically get a piece of that donut because you moved it for me. You got to grease the palms. You got to, you know, for the for the wheels to turn you don't tell a sleeper that hey move this over here and you don't give him a piece of something so it's a very significant job to have and i I had it in 15 minutes after getting there because of leaving blood alley i immediately took over and sure enough at six o'clock that night i'm walking on the i look in the vestibule and who's staying there both casper and cowboy they didn't catch them and I, and they looked at me and said, ah, I see same old, same old, huh? I said, yeah, didn't change with time and place. They smile, they walk up to the bars. Casper says, hey, um, everything cool? I said, yeah, you guys coming in here? He says, yeah, I'm going down there. They gave me the cell number. There would be cell again. Same situation. They got a TV now, by the way. And he comes close to the bars. He says, hey, Dan didn't say nothing. He's alive but he'd be shipped into a bag for the rest of his life. Same old, same old man. He just looked at me and smiled and said, I'll see you in a minute, Bill. Sure enough, the tear cop walked and he says, hey, you're going to sell 31.3 and you're in 31.4. Fantastic. Boom, they go in there, nothing changes. I was still selling with Richard, months. Monster, they put him right there again, so nothing changes and they didn't get caught. They never found the knife because later on they sent somebody that unit to recover the knife and no one ever found anything else. And that guy Dan, well, he's dead now, but he was right. He basically sat into a bag for the rest of his life for breaking that television and disrespecting all of his cellies. That's how serious it is in a real prison, not like some of these housewives, and I've mentioned these rappers that go to County for 15 or 20 days or a couple of months, and they come out and they say they've done time. <laughs> that wasn't time. They got a vacations with they got. If they came into a unit like this, they would go straight immediately. They would forget crime, they'd forget everything, because most guys don't leave these units without being severely scarred for the rest of their life. Look, I should know. I've been in prison for
1: nearly 40 years. So he got stabbed in the neck, and it sounds like he had some internal injuries. I think you explained before. I have a, a faint recollection. With these bone crushers, they're kind of manufactured to to stab, but also like to do internal damage. Is that is that about right? Well,
0: yeah. Anytime you stick a hard piece of metal into a, bo- a person's body, <laughs> five or six inches into it um yeah they're very sharp they go in they and yeah they do poke because they're not like a regular knife that cuts but the sides cut paper but they they're, they're very thick so when they go in yeah they, they, they the damage is just horrendous i mean you stab a guy 30 plus times in the neck chest uh, lungs kidneys liver it, 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 those are huge um damages to the body you just don't recover from that and if you punch holes in the stomach area you have um, you know parts of the digestive tract that go into the regular bloodstream you can die of of, uh, poisoning it's just really a horrible situation I mean I know I've been stabbed I know what it feels like luckily for me I've been able to uh, walk away from it pretty much unscathed but if I take off my shirt and you look at my arms and parts of my chest and shoulder, you'll see the the the, the wounds that I've had from battle. I mean, I take them as badges of honor. I mean, I've fought for my existence, and of course now I don't think of it the same way all the time. But it's it, a part of me feels that um, you know I've, I've spent this much time in prison and I've virtually left unscathed.
1: So yeah, you have spent all this time in prison, but you know, the listeners probably aren't aware that this entire time that essentially the whole time you've been on death row you know, you've had legal proceedings going on and going back and forth and it's all very complicated but there's recently been a development in your, in your case, right?
0: Yeah, there has been. Actually, it, it happened nearly four years ago On November 17, 2017, a federal judge reversed and threw out my conviction, my sentence, and ordered that I be retried or released in 120 days. That release date was March 17, 2018. That was the day I was supposed to be released to go home. Unfortunately for me, the attorney general in California filed an appeal, and that appeal, after three years was partially taken from me. So then I knew I wasn't going home, but the same judge that gave me the reversal then ordered that I be retried for a new penalty phase. And that means either I was going to get death again or life in prison. So I recently got the official word that Orange County would not be retrying me or trying to seek the death penalty. The reasoning was sound. I mean, I've been arguing this point for nearly 40 years that given the age i was 18 when this happened given the time i've been in prison nearly 40 years my record my deeds in terms of education rehabilitation lectures podcast artist writer author has given them a i guess a moment of pause that maybe this isn't the worst guy in the world and that maybe he has rehabilitated himself, so they've chosen not to seek the death penalty, and very soon I'll be going to court to be resentenced to a lesser sentence, which is life, and uh, we'll see what happens then. There'll still be appeals filed and other things that we have to argue. Um, But yeah, uh, officially right now, I'm still physically on death row. But very soon, in the next few weeks, I will be no longer death row inmates or convicts. I'll be given life, and um, we'll see where that takes me.
1: So is it possible you could become eligible for parole once you're resentenced, or even with time served that you could have completed that sentence?
0: Well, anything is possible. But with the sentence i'll be receiving which is life without the possibility of parole lwop there would be no um i would never get out however i am a, i'm also a youth offender and we are arguing that point in court that look i was 18 years old my brain development wasn't at a at a level where i wasn't impulsive so we're going to argue that point because right now in california if you're under the age of 25 you normally don't do more than 25 years straight before you become an eligible for Well, I've been in prison nearly 40 years, and I would put my record against any of those guys of basically my education and the, the things I've done in prison to better myself. So um, there's always possibilities. I always hold on to hope. Um, whether they give me a lesser sense and make me eligible or not, I'm going to continue to... Uh, trying to help other people, other youth, so they don't make the mistakes that I made. You know, I come off, I know it's a pretty, I mean, all the, the things that I have in my life and the brutality that I've witnessed, but I, I'm trying to use it to help people. Just because I see these things I know about, them and the knowledge I have, well, it can be used for some good. And that's my message, is that, um, you know, no one else can talk about these things. No one else can teach these lessons but me. And uh, I'm going to continue to do that, man. Uh, hopefully, I'll be given the opportunity to do so uh, from being a free person so I can affect kids and at-risk youth, uh, at youth before they have the problems that I've had in my life. Because once you get behind these walls, once you're convicted of a crime, it's almost virtually impossible to erase that from your life. And I'm a perfect
1: example of it. An interesting thing about the book too, you know, without getting too much into the details, but apart from being 18, your dad was giving you these vitamins that without your knowledge turned out to be steroids. And so, you know, your case is complicated. And for those uninitiated, there's a whole movement, uh, like you mentioned with Youth Offenders, to classify them differently you know someone who committed a crime when they were uh very young you know scientifically before the brain develops and all this well it's more than just a movement the laws are already in
0: place and they, they they've evolved there was sb-260 and sb-261 and it went on it was first 21 years of age and then it was 23 years of age and then it was 25 years of age There are now laws in the books that they do not give a person under the age of 25, more than 25 years straight in prison, before he's made eligible. Of course, he has to prove that he's being rehabilitated. He must take the classes, the anger management classes, admit to his wrongdoing, all these things. My problem is that it's not applicable to me because they gave me a special circumstance. Well, and that may be eligible for death. Well, that's a problem itself. If you're admitting scientifically they have these studies, they have the proof that if you can't form a logical opinion at the age of 18, if you're closer to a juvenile, then how do they expect you then to somehow mastermind something that's even more uh, crazy or more uh, terrible? See how that doesn't work? So my argument is that I'm not being treated fairly. If there is a man right now in prison that committed three or four homicides and he's 24 years of age and they gave him 75 years to life and he's eligible for parole after 25 years, how is it that me, an 18-year-old boy, convicted of killing one person, which is still a horrible thing, it's a terrible thing, nevertheless, am not eligible for parole? That makes no sense whatsoever. So we are... uh, Attacking it in court that I should be treated fairly and that's basically my argument. So we'll see what happens. I'm You know, I'm grateful that I'll be going to Another prison, but unfortunately for me when you lose the death penalty as I've mentioned before You lose all those rights to have attorneys to get investigators and the state pays for everything So now that I get life, I'll have to come up with a way of paying for attorneys appeal I'll have to find a way of paying for appeals lawyers, investigators, which was paid for when I had the death penalty. So it just proves my point correct of what I've said all along, that when you give a person a death penalty, you give them all these funding and all this stuff and taxpayers are paying $100,000 a year just to keep them in prison. Now, when I get life, it'll cost the taxpayer about 40-something thousand dollars a year to keep me in prison for the rest of my life. And uh,
1: no lawyers, no appeals uh, to come up with myself. So what are your thoughts on leaving Death Row after, like, close to 40 years? It must be really complicated.
0: It, it, it is. I have a lot of mixed feelings. I know this program. I know that I'll be in a cell by myself. Now these for The time being, while that cell door is closed, I'm safe. Going to another prison, I don't know how things are going to be. It's like moving to a new home. It's very stressful. I don't know exactly what's going to happen. Um, but look, Matt. I'm gonna adapt I always do and, and that sometimes is a bit troubling troubling for me because no matter the situation I seem to adapt and if they take something I adapt if they take another thing I adapt at some point it just begins to bother you that you're able to just adapt to any situation no matter what they do to you and well a lot's been done to me but um I hope that things go well. Um, as in any given situation, I look forward to it. And, uh, I'll land on my feet. I always do. And, uh, maybe I can do some good somewhere else.
1: Did you ever see Casper again? Do you know what happened to him?
0: Yeah. Casper's on death row. He's here with me.
1: So he was, uh, when he was in jail, he had committed a crime that eventually landed him on death row.
0: Yes, he had multiple murders.
1: Well, I certainly wish you luck and, you know, I'm following what's going on and we'll keep everyone updated. And, you know, we're hoping that in this new facility that you'll be able to continue having these phone privileges. Um, but obviously, I'm just really rooting for for you getting out, and we don't know what's going to happen right now, but that's that's what I'm hoping. So, um, yeah, th- I guess those are my thoughts on it.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, let's hope that I can continue doing uh, this broadcast with you. Um, I think it's important that people understand what's going on. And look, if nothing else, there's a bit of entertainment in it too i mean hearing these stories it's oh, as horrible as they may sound and, and they are uh, they give a bit of a uh, insight to something that a world that most people don't understand nor really know about until they get someone to talk about it like myself because tv shows uh, that's just coming out of someone's imagination this is real life and that's why these are death row diaries
1: Yes, they are, we appreciate you listening. I've been Matt Ralston.
0: And I'm Wanda Be safe, be aware of your surroundings, your life could depend on it.